the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit continues to warn Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But despite multiple repeated warnings from believers, prophets, and everyone around him, Paul is determined to go. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 21, verse 5. Once again, that's Acts chapter 21, verse 5. Acts chapter 21, verse 5. And when they had accomplished those days, we departed and we went our way. And they all brought us on our way. Remember, he's only known these folks for a week. They all brought us on our way with wives and children until we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. You know, Paul, sometimes when you read his letters, he comes off a little grumpy and a bit cantankerous. But the truth is, the believers loved him deeply. He was a man that they just loved to be around. They knew they were loved by him, and they loved him back. In just a week's time together, these believers accompany him all the way down to the beach with their entire family. And there on the beach, what do they do? They just pray. They seek God's face together. You know, I imagine that some of you who are in Peru the last 10 days or so, you formed some pretty neat relationships, didn't you? Some friendships, right, that are going to last a lifetime. You think, how did that happen? Well, there's, there's something special when believers get together. There's something unique that happens when you, you're with like-minded believers and your hearts are just knit together. God's love does amazing things. I'm sure these folks had jobs. I'm sure they had homes that needed caring for, but they made time for prayer and for fellowship. And love was the reason. 1 John 4, 7, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, right? What an amazing thing. And so it says, Beloved, in 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another. Let us love one another. That is God's command. You are greatly loved by God, therefore love one another. What a great command. Let's do it, you know? You are greatly loved by God. Therefore, love one another. Let's do it. Verse 7. When we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to to Ptolemais, and we saluted the brothers there, and we abode with them one day. And so they they get to the city of Ptolemais, about 20 miles south of Tyre, about 20 miles north of their destination in Caesarea. They hang out with the believers there for one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed, and we came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven. 
they get there, they departed uh, from Ptolemais and they come unto Caesarea. And when they get to Caesarea, they stay there for a while and with good reason. For it mentions, uh, there was a man who lived there, Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven. Who, might I remind you, are now what? Are they seven now? They're six now. Because that guy who's coming to visit was consenting to Stephen's death. I bet that was an interesting doorbell ring. Ding dong. Philip opens the door. And there he sees in front of him who? Paul the Apostle. The man who had persecuted and killed many of his friends. The man who had voted for one of his dear friends, Stephen's death. It makes a point to mention Philip's identification with that group. I think it's an important reason why. Because can you imagine what it was like for Philip to answer the door and to see the man who'd been responsible for his friend Stephen's death? In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it talks about the havoc that Paul breathed out against the church. Philip had to leave Jerusalem and to leave everything he knew. And he went to Samaria. Seeing this man's face had to bring back all of those painful memories. And yet, the Paul who stood in front of him was now forgiven and a brother. And it mentions that Philip welcomes him into his home. It says, and they abode with him. It's, there's a semicolon there, which means there was an indefinite pause. I don't know if that means they just spent a long time saying hi. I don't know if Philip first thought to himself, wow, I never thought I'd meet this guy at my front door. But at some point, he embraced him and welcomed him into his home. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Peter says, above all else, above anything else, everything else, Paul says, love each other deeply. And then he explains that doing so means forgiving one another. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John writes to me, he says, My little children, I write unto you because you have known the love of the Father. You've known that God has forgiven your sins. The first thing we learn as new believers is that God has forgiven us, that he loves us, right? It's the first thing we come to understand, that as a new creation, he has forgiven us and he loves us. And we are to give that love now to one another. The same love that God has given to us, his forgiveness, his mercy and kindness. And so it mentions here that they abode with him. Now, Philip's ministry has changed. He is now Philip the evangelist, not Philip the deacon anymore. And his job role now, his ministry, is to share with people who have not heard the gospel and to introduce new believers to the basics of the scripture. I imagine much of what Luke shared in the early part of Acts came from conversations with Philip and also from his daughters, for they were uniquely special as well. For it mentions here, the same man, verse 9, had four daughters. Normally, most of us would be like, wow, that's, that's rough. But it mentions here virgins, which did prophesy. Now, not the office of prophet. They were not prophets in the church, but they had the gift that Romans 12 talks about, the gift of prophecy. You have the ability to speak into people's lives and do it according to your faith. God simply used them to speak often into other people's lives. Now, what's interesting about these gals 
the Eusebius, the church historian, mentions that after many of the apostles died, people traveled great distances to visit these four ladies to listen to their accounts of the early church. He mentions that they were great lights during the persecutions and they spoke much encouragement to the believers. Can you imagine what it'd be like to have four daughters who are sold out to Jesus like that? That's pretty awesome. (laughs) What a family legacy Philip has and how important it is that we pour into our kids that they might be what God wants them to be in totality. Well, while they were there, something dramatic happens. Verse 10. And as we tarried there for many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, this guy we've met before in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, when he and a bunch of other prophets came from Judea, and they visited Paul's home church in Antioch. And there they had prophesied about, or Agabus stood up and prophesied about a famine that was coming to the area of Judea. And so Paul and the church there, they took up a collection for the church at Jerusalem and they went and they ministered to him. And so, you know, I almost wonder if Paul, you know, Agabus comes up and he's thinking, wow, this must be confirmation from the Lord. I'm supposed to go. Just like last time the church had financial need and we brought the offering and now they've got financial need again and I'm supposed to go. Verse 11, look at what he has to say this time though. When he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus saith the Holy Ghost. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Literally, the way the Greek is rendered here, it means he walks in the door. He comes in the door, immediately goes to Paul, takes his sash. I mean, he unwraps. I mean, that's kind of weird. You know, hey, Agabus, and he just grabs his sash and then he ties up his own hands and his own feet, which takes some creative positioning, I would think. I can't tie my hands and feet without my hands and feet being close together. I don't know if he hogtied himself. I'm not sure what he did. But that's literally what happens. They're all hanging out. I don't know if it's after church. I don't know what they're doing. But he he walks in, immediately grabs Paul's sash, ties up his hands and feet. And there he is in this funky position. And as he's laying there in front of everybody, hogtied, he explains the reason for these odd actions. And he says, thus says the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owns this sash and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, like I said, maybe I'm just dense, but here's the gift of prophecy in operation again. And if God wanted me to go to Jerusalem, I don't see how seeing this dude all tied up on the floor is supposed to strengthen my resolve to do so. I don't see how this speaks into my life, edification, comfort, or exhortation, okay? I don't think I look at that and go, oh, thanks, Agabus. I was doubting if God wanted me to go, but now I know it's the Lord. Thanks for the encouragement. I'm good to go now. Every time, you look at it in the Old Testament, every single time God called a prophet to do something dramatic like this, it was to get the attention of his wayward people because they were too stubborn to listen to plain speech. Every time. Hey, uh, Ezekiel, Go build a little city, you know, build a little city that looks like Jerusalem and then take some rocks and knock it down and then do it all over again. Now, Ezekiel does it. People are going, what is that crazy Ezekiel guy doing now? Ezekiel, why are you playing tin soldiers with the rocks? You're a grown man. Get off the ground. And Ezekiel, then he spoke because now he had a crowd that would listen. 
God would do these dramatic things when his own people were just too stubborn to listen. And that's how everyone else takes it there. Verse 12, look at what they say. And when they heard these things, same phrase where Paul said, none of these things move me. When they heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up. Now, who is we? That's Paul's entire ministry team. All the men he's brought with him, Luke included. And they of that place, that includes Philip and his four godly prophesying daughters who hear from God really well. And every single one of them, are they're begging. And the word they're besought, it's continual. It means they kept on begging, kept on pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, first off, look at the amazing concern that's poured out for Paul. Everyone surrounding him has showered loving warnings upon him. They've showed their affection by pleading with him to listen to their warnings, to ignore all of that love. It's not usually a good sign, a sign of good decision-making. When I have a lot of people speaking into my life saying, Will, I think, I think this is a bad route. I think you should really reconsider this. It gets my attention. When people that I know love me and care about me are saying something to me, it gets my attention. In fact, look in the Bible. There's not a single mention of any person supporting Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem. Not one. There are times to stand alone when we must stand alone. But to ignore the exhortations of every single believer that loves you over the last few months? Listen, what would you and I say? What would most of us here say to someone in our church who did that? When every single person here is telling them, I think this is a bad idea. We would think they were proud, stubborn, and unwise. Because that's one of the reasons God put us into his body. We need one another. I, I want to encourage you, take some time today just to kind of sit down or just stand up wherever you are and just look around you. Look around at all the folks who are gathered here. There are people in this room who pray for you every day. Every day. Who love you immensely. That's not something to brush aside lightly. See, the enemy wants to isolate us, to get us thinking on our own. Don't let him. Don't let him. So I ask you this morning, maybe there's someone here that people have been pleading in the church with you to not take a certain course of action, to not disobey the Lord, or maybe to not take an ungodly risk. I want to challenge you. Don't ignore their loving warnings. There's wisdom in loving counsel. It's a safe place. Verse 13, then Paul answered, <laughs> What mean you to weep and break my heart? For I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase break my heart means to crush the strength of my resolve or the strength of my soul. You're trying to break my heart. You're trying to break my will. Don't do it. What mean you to do this? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. And I, to that would reply, but God isn't asking you to die yet, Paul. <laughs> you know, sometimes we walk around being afraid. I've seen a lot of panic on social media the last few days. I, I got a few panicked remarks and emails and texts from folks, and I just tried to encourage them and say, hey, you know what? Lord's still on the throne. We don't need to be afraid. Most of the time, God isn't calling us to die. I would say that for 99.9% for .9 of us, he's calling us to live for him, not to die. 
Most of us are going to live a full life. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to impact the people in our circles of influence. It's not the time to panic. It's the time to draw near. It's the time to seek his face. Agabus actually warned him and said, you're not going to die, Paul. That's the problem. They're going to turn you over to the Gentiles and you're going to be imprisoned by them. And you know, it would take Paul five years to get out of their hands because he didn't heed this warning. Five years. It came to a place so much that Paul was so discouraged the Lord had to come to him and cheer him up and say, be of good cheer. Listen, anytime the Lord has to come to you and say, be of good cheer, it means you're not in a good mood. Okay? It means you're not doing well. Okay? You're down. Okay? When God has to come and say, cheer up, it's because he's the glory and lifter of our head, right? Our heads are down. We're discouraged. We're frustrated. I think Paul was probably sitting there in Festus's apartment that he'd given to him thinking, yeah, I'm really accomplishing a lot for the Lord now. Should have heeded all those stinking warnings to not go to Jerusalem. Do you know when Paul gets in trouble? He's preaching to the Jews. We're going to get to it a little bit. He's preaching to them, totally oblivious of the will of God here. So much so that he actually, he's in trial before the Sanhedrin and he's saying to them, I have a clear conscience before God and men. That's great, Paul, because no one else thinks you should. And there he's preaching to him and he says, listen, the last time I was here in Jerusalem, I was here praying and God warned me in a dream. And he said, hey, Paul, get out of Jerusalem for I sent you the Gentiles. That's the moment they, they riot. What a fitting phrase to be the last words he utters to the people he thought he was there to rescue. And imagine as he sat in that under house arrest, he's down and he's thinking, I really messed up my life. And the Lord comes to him, he says, be of good cheer. As you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you shall testify of me in Rome. Paul's head, I imagine, came up with it. Rome? Not Rome, Paul. I'm not done yet. I could still work. And I will still. Paul's position of readiness to die for the Lord is so admirable, and he will someday. We should all be ready to do whatever it is the Lord would task us with, even giving our own lives up for the name of Jesus. And so, while I think it was a mistake, I think Paul is a rare man that there's much to admire. Is your heart in a position of readiness for whatever God would task you with? What if he would call you? to put yourself in a place where you're at risk because you're ministering God's truth and love. Will you do it? Are you ready? Well, verse 14, when he could not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Now that could be taken two ways. Some take it as them finally coming around to Paul's way of thinking, okay, well, I guess this is God's will. Let it be done. Others see it as them asking God to have his will done since Paul doesn't want to do it. <laughs> since you won't listen, we're going to ask God to do his thing anyway. But the good news is that whether they or Paul are in the wrong here, we don't know for sure. The good news is that God is far bigger than any of our mistakes. Amen. While there were long periods of inactivity during Paul's imprisonment, God still used Paul. And you know what? Maybe you're here today and you've made mistakes because you've ignored loving counsel from other believers. You've gone down roads. You knew you probably shouldn't have gone, but you kind of brute forced your way into it and said, I know I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it happen. And then you live with the consequences. Well, listen, what? today is a new day, guys. God still wants to work in and through your life. Just yield to him today. Say, Lord, my life is yours. What do you have for me now? And trust me, he has plenty of things for you to do. Verse 15, 
And after those days, we took up our carriages or our luggage or baggage, and we went up to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea. So some of the believers there at Caesarea went down too. And they brought with them one Manasseh of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. Uh, I don't know how old this guy was. Old is not the correct word there. It means an early disciple. In other words, he'd been saved from the beginning of the church. Uh, likely one of those who got saved during Pentecost. Now, he was from the island of Cyprus, but it says he had a home in Jerusalem. And so it would be very unlikely that Paul and his team of Gentiles would find lodging with anyone in Jerusalem. And so this guy says, listen, you're going to have a hard time finding anywhere to stay in Jerusalem. I got a place there. You know, let me go with you and, and you guys can stay with me. And so, verse 17, and when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly with great joy and pleasure. Listen, turn over to Acts 20, verse 4 with me. I want to read to you, because you're going to see in this list of Paul's team something very interesting. These are all Greek names. With the exception of Timothy and maybe one other, these guys are all dirty Gentiles. And there accompanied him, verse 4 of chapter 20, into Asia, Sopater of Berea, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timotheus of Asia, and Tychicus and Trophimus. These were all real Gentiles or Hellenistic Jews at the very best. And they've been ministering, even if they weren't, they've been ministering to dirty Gentiles their whole Christian life. And now they walk into an environment that is 100% Jewish <laughs> in all of its rituals and all of its practice. As these two groups could not have been more different, it is so cool to see when they were come to Jerusalem, the brothers there received us with great joy and pleasure. What an awesome thing to see two different groups of people to accept one another with great joy because that's what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. We should look out in our congregation and you should see a bunch of people that you go, yeah, most of these people probably would not be found in the same room in any other venue. <laughs> Culturally, we're probably a little different. We're different in what likes and dislikes, but here we all stand united under the love of God. Isn't that cool? One of the things that when I left Calvary Lighthouse to come here, I was concerned about was because we had a very uh, racially diverse church, very culturally diverse church. And that always was a huge blessing to me because I thought, Lord, we didn't go out to do anything. We just, that's what we were because that's what your love does. Your love breaks down all those barriers. We don't see them anymore. We just love one another. And I didn't know what I'd be stepping into. And it was such a blessing that first Sunday morning to come and sit down in that row over there and look out and go, I'm home. It's just like it was there, here. Look around you. We couldn't be more different. And yet we're all united in Christ. And because of that, we have great joy, great gladness in being with one another. It's the body of Christ. It's what we are. It's how we shine. But, you know, I want to leave you with a few scriptures. Because I think the challenge is, I think we are, if none of us would sit here and say, yeah, we're supposed to love each other. I'm thinking there's a single person who's going to go, wait a second. No, I don't think that's what the Bible says. 
<clears throat> but I think the struggle sometimes is what does that look like? And in 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. In other words, it starts from a person. The example is set for us in our Lord. That's what love looks like. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it gives us a good definition of love. And I just want to close by reading that. So 1 Corinthians 13, I just want to read verses 4 through 7. This is what love looks like, and it was exemplified in our Savior. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not brag on itself. It is not puffed up or arrogant. It does not behave itself unseemly or rudely. It seeks not its own. It is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil or keeps no record of wrong. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. That is the love God has for us, and that is the love we are called to have to one another. And more than ever, if we're going to impact a culture that's going to hell, they need to see that kind of love amongst us for one another. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407 523 0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.